Hey kids, how are you? Uh, hope you're good. I'm alright. Uh, <laughs> as alright as one can be while living through a global pandemic and looming climate catastrophe in a country that is daily clawing its way back to the dark ages of imperial presidencies and dictatorships. That's why this episode was difficult for me uh, to get into. Difficult, of course, in a different way from last episode's difficult, but difficult all the same. I have grappled with the wisdom of spending time analyzing the narratives in African films while the world literally goes to hell in a handbasket. I have started writing a hundred times and stopped 99 times because I could not for the life of me see any value in it. Uh, then I started reading All Artists Propaganda by George Orwell and it reminded me that stories matter. Yes, the world is in a singularly fucked up place right now, and yes, millions of people will die, and yes, maybe I will be among them, but it stands to reason that a few people will survive, and the stories we tell matter, and may influence how survivors continue to conduct the business of living, post or likely plus COVID-19. So I picked up my pen and paper again, and I watched the film again, and I started writing again. Uh, so the film we'll dissect today is The Wedding Party. Uh, it's a 2016 Nigerian film that was ranked the highest grossing Nigerian film of all time, and the one with the biggest opening to date. It premiered in Canada, if I'm not wrong, um, and it was directed by Kemi Adetiba. I I'm almost 100% sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, and I'm sorry. Um, and it was written by... The same, Kimi Aditiba and Tosin Otodeko, both of whom I was convinced throughout my repeated watching of the film were male. I was sure that a convoluted story masquerading as a romantic comedy such as that one could only have been conceived in the mind of a penile slash penis friend. So, yeah, I was wrong. Okay, so high-level summary of the film. Um... 24-year-old, pure, innocent, naive, virgin girl, Doni, is marrying ultra-rich, ever-revolving bedroom door playboy, Dozier. And on this day, wedding day, all manner of crap happens, including, but not limited to, the resurfacing and kissing of exes, family members fighting, and even a hilarious scene with a robber slash thief that turns out to not be so hilarious after all. We follow them as they deal with all the chaos and, uh, I suppose the lesson after it all works out is love wins or whatever. We'll talk about uh, the key themes that stood out for me, and that is class and love slash romance. So yeah, the bride and the broom are... <laughs> the broom. <laughs> I'm sorry. The bride, <laughs> the bride and the groom are Duni and Dozi respectively. Um, here's how you can tell the difference between the bride and groom's names. Dozier, with a Z, is absolutely the last man anyone should marry. The last man anyone, anyone, ever, ever, ever should marry. So, you know, Z as in last letter of the alphabet, you get it? Yeah. So, Duni, with an N, with an N is his bride to be. Okay, great. Um, class is a huge element in this film. Really? Only the uncultured would keep people waiting like this? Both families are rich, but Dozier is the guy's. Uh, the guy's family is way, way richer. 
Dooney the Bride was in college in UK at Southampton. She has a white friend who is in the line of succession to the throne in England. I mean, she's like 2,450 something in line. But she's in the fucking royal line, bitches. Uh, yeah, so full disclosure. I was like, oh, when I saw the white girl. I mean, this has largely been the function of white people in African films to signal the class of the people they associate with. Anyway, so more on class. Dozie's mother is the embodiment of high class. She looks amazing in every single scene. I mean, she brings it hard. Naturally, she despises people who are beneath her social class, referring to Duny, who, as you recall, went to Southampton University as a house girl that Dozier has brought to marry. <laughs> a bomb. I would welcome a bomb if it would stop this awful wedding from taking place today. I have seen at least half of these girls go in and out of Dozier's flat. This one will come. Good morning, Ma. That one will come. Can I help you cook, Ma? <laughs> Can you imagine me cook? Hmm. I mean, just look at this one. Take this one, this one right here. This one. Dumb as a donkey. Hmm? Well, at least her father is a chairman of Westport Bank. Now, why didn't the famous roving Unka I land on one of these? But no. No, my son brings me a native house girl from Ikiti State. <laughs> Hello. She abhors traditional Nigerian food, referring to it as dog mash, choosing instead to serve some exotically named dishes and hors d'oeuvres at the wedding. That is correct. Dog tata with a carpaccio option for starters. Mm -hmm. Potato delphinoir with a Moroccan lamb as the main meal. Excuse me, ladies. I seem to have lost my appetite. Mm hmm Okay. Okay. Orders for the same number of guests. Well done, Sinachi. I shall see you later. Wow. The menu sounds exquisite. Of course. Yeah. I'm not about to let the cocos poison my guests. <laughs> Under no circumstances must you serve my guest that dog mash or whatever it is you're serving. Are we clear? Yes, yes, ma'am, yes. For some reason, being upper class also has bundled with it the demeaning of the traditional, whether it be food or female gender roles such as cooking. I mean, I get it, alright? It's some crazy shit that women were forced and still are forced to put up with because they're vagina persons. I'm all in, you know, down with the patriarchy. But when we begin to demean and devalue caring work such as cooking, yo, nobody wins. In Everything I Never Told You, a young adult book by Celeste Ning, the mom, because of some childhood issues with her own mom, gets to a point where she stops doing all the care work, like cooking for her kids, in the name of focusing on more important stuff, like their academics. And I'll just say this, it ends in tears and sorrow for everybody. And yeah, it's a book, it's a book worth reading. Caring work is the most valuable work in all its forms, whether it be at home cooking for your kids, or in a hospital caring for patients, or in school teaching kids. This has especially been proven true during this global pandemic. 
essential workers and not investment bankers and the rest of the sexy professionals. Kids, don't believe this fallacy of equating care work with being humiliated or whatever. And it is true that people have exploited women's caring work, especially in the home. But that does not speak to the value of the work as much as it speaks to the inhumanity of the people who demean caregivers. Care work has also fallen disproportionately on women, and that is part of why it is so devalued and in some cases humiliating kids. Don't believe that patriarchal misogynistic fallacy that it is just for women. Caring is what makes us human, all of us. And one day we'll talk about how this work falls disproportionately on women and how women and not compensated for it, and how that contributes to the economic inequality and the overrepresentation of women among the persons of all. Alright, so one day. Recently, I started reading uh, We Live to Tell, which is a collection of stories of people who survived the Nyayo dictatorship era in Kenya. Read it. The book is full of heartbreaking, tragic consequences of caring about your well-being and caring for others. These people cared about their fellow countrymen enough to put their lives on the line. Now, this level of caring is eventually considered sexy and heroic once certain civic victories are won. Certainly not in the heat of the struggle, though. It's also sexy and heroic only for those whose names are eventually remembered. So, your Mandela's, Tom Boyer's, and Martin Luther King's. The millions of faceless protesters the world over are forgotten. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm already here, so, you know, here goes. Number one, this obsession with solitary revolutionary figures is counter-revolutionary, serving only to deify heavily flawed people while at the same time discouraging everyday ordinary people from courageous civic participation. Because, you know, there could never be a Sankara or a Che Guevara. Don't look to these big names. Look at the millions of unnamed, forgotten people who went to the streets knowing full well they would die, and nobody except their immediate family and friends would know or even care, and they went anyway. Look to them, because if you're anywhere near as engaged as this world demands you be, you will be among these unnamed, forgotten people. Okay, back to caring. Don't be deceived. That caring is only at this high-risk, celebrated level. Every little act of caring matters. Caring is not just at this level that's celebrated and sexy and, dare I say, manly. But it's cooking for your family and cleaning up and doing all the unsexy things that will never be celebrated but that make life just a little more bearable for those in your circles. The point is, all of you... Boys, girls, male, female, trans, questioning, whatever. Cook, clean, care. There's nothing demeaning about that, alright? Right? Contrary to popular belief, those things have nothing to do with your genitalia. Mm. So, don't be like Dozier's mom, who has believed all the patriarchal lies about caring, being demeaning and beneath her. And yo, <laughs> we took the scenic route there. <laughs> Bet you forgot this was about movies. Back to the wedding party. The entire film just screams class. I mean, my God. You know, which is to say, money was poured. In talking about such ostentatious displays of wealth, George Orwell and all artist propaganda says this kind of thing is a perfectly deliberate incitement to wealth fantasy. I repeat, 
This kind of thing is a perfectly deliberate incitement to wealth fantasy. I mean, these people live a life that you can only fantasize about or perhaps aspire to if you have a healthy ego or subscribe to feel good theories about naming, attracting, and manifesting desires. It wasn't until my 15th or 16th viewing of the film that I picked up on something chilling and insidious. Towards the end of the film, a robber slash thief tries to steal the gifts and is caught red-handed. He takes hostage um, Duni and Dozier's parents, as well as Dozier's brother Nonso. As he waves his gun at them, he calls them out for not knowing what it means to work, what it means to luck, and reveals that he graduated from university and has since not been able to get a job. What? Jesus! Hey, Phoenix! Did you see them? Ah, here, the meeting. Oh yeah. Ah. Move that way. Well done, sir. Uh, he said move that way. Uh, uh, listen to people. Move that way. Eh? Now, so. Yes, Dad. Why is a man with a gun in here? I don't know. We just walked in and found him robbing the place. Is something wrong with you? I mean, is something wrong with you? I don't tell you say I'd be thief and not be robber. Okay, thief, Robert, please, what's the difference? Oh, you think this is a joke? No. You think this is a joke, eh? Please, please. I'm sure my boss didn't mean any harm. <laughs> the boss didn't mean any harm. Like I said, I'm not a member of their family. Hey, hey! Oh, yeah. And I'm sorry. But I just want the girl that I married back, you know? I just want you back. Shut up, all of you! What do you think you're doing? Choosing me to share your problems. Do you think this is super story? See, I don't have time for this anymore. I need to find my... Hey, 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 stop What there. is it now? Everybody keep quiet! My guy, what do you want? How much do you want? Shabit already asked you. What did you say to me? It's enough, It's not you, it's not you. Please, look. Um, let my family go. You and I, we'll work something out. Work? We're family. What do you rich people know about work? Eh? What do you know about work? Seven years in the university. Graduated with a first class. No work. Three years down the line. And you are mentioning work. I see people like you smiling and jubilating. What? People like me. So far, I think it's time to turn the tables around. And make people like you suffer. You, I can't tell you how happy this scene made me. Finally, someone was calling out rich people for their work hard crap. Until it occurred to me that the scene ends with the thief slash being taken down and subdued by Nanso, the groom's brother. They don't show us what happens next, so all we have is our fatal imaginations, but even then, I don't think they just release them into the wild. Like good rich people, they'd probably call the police and our unemployed thief slash robber is sitting in her cell somewhere facing serious consequences for robbery and violence. Do you really think it doesn't mean anything that the one person who criticizes the excesses of wealth in the entire film is subdued by the same wealthy people? I cannot, without any cognitive dissonance, believe that this is just an innocent part of the story and that it doesn't mean anything. The stories we tell matter. Who we center matters. Who wins matters. It's also important to remember that all the rich kids in the film are rich because of their parents' wealth. 
White girl is titled and clearly the child of ultra wealthy parents. The bride, the knee, is the child of oil business parents, a business that is as dirty as it is profitable. There's, however, no better illustration of the work heard for the life you deserve fallacy than Dozier and his brother Nonso. Both of them work at their father's clearly, massively successful company. At the end of the film, in what is supposed to pass for a warm and feel-good gesture, their father resigns to allegedly spend time with the wife he actively cheated on with younger women and leaves the company to his sons. He actually names Nonso as the new CEO. The son he has done nothing but berate from the beginning of the film. The motherfuckers want us to perpetrate demonstrably false narratives about working hard. Fuck out of here. Looking sharp, boys. Thank you, oh, sir. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank, thank you. Sir. Good. Nice, nice. <laughs> um, Nonso? Yes, sir. Have you sorted out the business and the ports yet? I haven't had time to... Are you the groom? No, Dad. Oh, so you must be the best man then. No, sir. So all you've done today is smile, take pictures. I'll make sure I get right to it. Yeah, you do that. Where's your brother? He's in his room. This is a major project. We cannot afford to lose it through your incompetence. Just try to sort this thing out, Gabriel. There was a delay at the port with the clearing. We should still be able to meet our deadline. Maybe if you had fired him just the way I told you to, none of this would have happened. We agreed I could run my team as I see fit, Dad. Maybe I should have just put Dozier in this project. I'm handling it. It doesn't seem like it. At least Dozier knows everybody I, I said I'm handling it, Dad. Besides, Dozier's too busy getting married. I will be taking a back seat and feel like industries to spend more time with my beautiful wife. So I will be handing over the reins of my company to my son, Nonsu. This story is based in Nigeria. Okay, a quick glance at Nigeria. The largest and most populous country in Africa. It is the seventh most populous country in the world and has the third largest youth population in the world after India and China, with more than 90 million of its population at the age of 18. More than 112 million Nigerians are living in poverty, according to an Oxfam report. 57 million Nigerians lack safe water. Over 130 million lack adequate sanitation. More than 10 million children are out of school. On unemployment, it's estimated that anything between 12.1 and 21.5 of Nigerian youth are unemployed. What is especially insidious and outrageous about Nigeria's inequality is the fact that it has been growing in the context of an expanding economy where benefits have been reaped by a minority of people at the top. It's not just that the wealthy hoard all the wealth. It's worse because, as COVID has shown us, it is not the wealthy who work. The reason they have all the wealth is because they keep the majority of the proceeds derived from the work of the lower classes, as Karl Marx. I mean, recently, Wendy and Joya, in exposing Kamau Wangegi, Kenya's first president and colonial sellout, masquerading as a freedom fighter, along with his family of cannibals, 
talked about the way it is poor people who work and rich people who reap and hold the spoils. This situation always remind me of Kianga Yamato's tailor, which I use in pretty much everything to do within, with wealth inequality. The essence of economic inequality is borne out in a simple fact. There are 400 billionaires in the United States and 45 million people living in poverty. These are not parallel facts. They are intersecting facts. There are 400 American billionaires because there are 45 million people living in poverty. Profit comes at the expense of the living wage. Corporate executives, university presidents, and capitalists in general are living the good life because so many others are living a life of hardship. Reject every permutation of the light that the world as it currently exists is just, and that people get what they deserve. In the words of Kianga Yamata Taylor, always ally yourself with those on the bottom, on the margins, and at the periphery of the centers of power. Always ally yourself with the wretched of the earth. Always ally yourself with the wretched of the earth. And as Chris Hedges says, when you do, they will treat you the same way they treat the wretched of the earth. So, you know, that's important to remember as you go, man. What also really pisses me off about these wealth and hoarding pornography narratives is the ways in which they make what is essentially a pathology somehow moral and aspirational. Are you fucking kidding me? You gaslight people who have been fucked up by a system, then you sanitize and elevate the perpetrators and their conduct, essentially saying to average people literally being killed by the system, if you just work hard, you could be the person fucking people over rather than the one being fucked over. As if that is the highest ideal we could hope for. Reject these narratives and all their permutations and iterations. Another class indicator was the comedic element. The Wedding Party 1 is classified as a romantic comedy. All the perceived lower class people were the primary source of comedic relief. From the driver with a gushy suit, to the uninvited guests who looked like they were from the village, to the pastor. It matters because the writing ensured we laughed at them, not with them. And there's a difference. This continued to play out in all the relationships on screen. When they were with the driver, we laughed at the driver. When Duni and Dozier's parents were together, Duni's less wealthy parents were who we laughed at. Every person plotting evil against their marriage. No mercy. Die by fire. Paurisi. Paurisi karamasi kokoko. Ripopopo. Fire, fire, fire. Fire poshude. Fire, fire, fire. Fire poshude. Or the enemy of full gas, fire possible. Get by fire! 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 Ah, you are not saying amen. If you are not saying amen, the fire carries you. And now, I say, oh, the daughters of Jesse Bell, present here. And you can see that you, there's no how they will not be here. All these Wobai sisters and one more Wobai that they have evil plots. That they have in their mind something, something. During the religious prayer parts, Duni and her parents appeared to be intimate, while Dozier and his parents looked at them as cans, prompting us to laugh at Duni and her folks. Who we laugh at matters. This is largely why satire in many totalitarian states, and even those masquerading as democratic states, is viewed as dangerous and subversive or seditious. Kenya, Brazil, China, and even Australia 
are a few countries off the top of my head that in my lifetime have attempted in one way or another to ban or limit satirical work. Satire exposes the upper classes so that we laugh at them at their unending idiocy and even commitment to wickedness. The laughing at the pastor and the religious devotees at the wedding was also interesting. It brings to mind all the ways in which religion remains largely a thing of the oppressed and the perceived lowly. In one of the Zoom meetings that have become a fixture in this new pandemic world, some Bible friends, uh, some Bible study friends, Isi and I were catching up. When one of our friends who now lives in Germany remarked that hardly any of his, of his neighbors was religious, yet they lived materially good lives. They didn't lack financially, uh, yet they had no reverence for God at all. He was thoroughly grappling with the fact that Africans who have held on insanely tightly to God are largely wallowing in poverty, while his neighbors who are basically heathens and infidels are living it up. It's the same thing at this wedding. All the ultra-wealthy upper class were mostly just amused by the pastor's antics, while the lower class were out there passionately yelling amen, their hands extended to the sky. I've never seen that in a Nigerian film. Usually, rich and poor alike have some reverence for God. I guess that speaks to the class of, you know, Dozier's family, as well as the changing times in Nigeria and the world. Okay, that's it on class. Um... I could go on and on. I mean, the whole thing really is just a study in class. Um, in the interest of time, but mostly, if I'm being honest, in the interest of making sure you don't get bored of my droning voice and continuous bitching, we'll stop here. Uh, next week, there'll be part two of The Wedding Party 1, in which I'll focus on the romantic element of the film. And guys, it is fucked up. If this is what passes for romance in Nigeria, yo, it's a hard pass for me. Okay, to some personal stuff. Uh, so, it's been a crazy week in terms of people dying. I mean, it's a pandemic, so people are falling off all over the world. And I don't say that lightly. Um, so, I've been thinking about dying a lot, which really, if I'm honest, is only slightly more than usual. Uh, so, today, the 21st of July, 2020... I found out that one of the indie leftist socialist YouTubers I follow died. Uh, his last video was posted two days before he died, and it reminded me of how we die in the middle of life. Uh, so I wanted to remember Michael Brooks in this one. When the pandemic started, people casually, and not so casually, said that a lot of lives will be lost. But for some reason, as human beings, we think of ourselves as exempt. You say to yourself, people will die. You don't think, I could be one of them. Um, all this dying around the world has sort of solidified that for me. I could die. There's every possibility that in the same way, people all over are dying. I could die. There's no reason why I should be exempt from that. Uh, if I'm being honest, the only reason I suspect I won't die it's because I have more suffering to go through. And don't ask me why. I know. I don't mean it in a suicidal way. Okay? Just, I have a hunch. Uh, just in the same way, life can be short. It can also be long. So, you could die tomorrow, or you could die 50 years from now. Personally, I think now is better than 50 years from now in so many ways. I mean, this world is fucked up. 
everywhere. There's just pain and suffering, and it's human beings, adults and babies, it's nature and animals everywhere. If you open your eyes, you will see it. This week I saw this video of a donkey suspended, hanging in the air, because the cart had been so overloaded, it had ended up jacking the donkey up. And, and it just hung there as people began unloading the cart. And I wondered if he was in pain, and what he thought, if donkeys think. And I just wanted to cry, you know. Pandemics make you want to cry a lot. Actually, maybe that's just life. I don't know. Chris Hedges once asked a rabbi if we were created to suffer. The first time I had him refer to the incident, I thought, what a dumb question. Of course not. Let's just say I have seen and experienced enough suffering since then to no longer think it's so dumb and or obvious a question. I really want to end on an uplifting note, but I, I, I can't find the words or dig up the sentiment. I, I can't find it. I'll say this though, sort of from the last episode on Graham. Oh wait, another baby died recently. He was a few months old and was coughing. He died in his mother's arms, in a car, in a hospital parking lot while they were waiting for a broken, bankrupted medical system to get their IC ready for him. His parents in this case had the money, except there were no facilities, so there you have it. Even money didn't save that baby. And this is not on the same level as children and people dying, but Kuli and I had a kitten that we were trying to help, and and she had gotten hurt and and while I was still like putting together the money to 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 pay the vet so the vet could come see because I mean it was a straight kitten the kitten just disappeared and Coley told me the kitten died and 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 it just it feels like this is the world it's just people in pain and animals in pain and nature in pain it just it's just pain ah anyway um so i guess the best you can do i think in a world such as this is decide what kind of person you want to be and what constitutes living a good life. And then do that. My only hope is that even though it is just tragic to choose caring for people, that you choose that. Because of who it allows you to be. I don't know if a good aunt is supposed to want that for you. Yeah, maybe a good aunt is just supposed to advise you to work hard and look out for number one and not worry about the rest of the world and all the shit you can't control. Maybe that's what a good aunt is supposed to do. Try and shield you from all this heartache and pain. Because, you know, you die in the middle of life. Like, 
Michael Brooks with all the things you fought for sometimes appearing farther than ever. But here's the thing. Until everyone is okay, no one will be okay. And so it doesn't matter if I want this path for you or not. As long as all the kids are not okay, as long as they're dying in the cold as their mothers watch, helpless. Then you will never be okay anyway. At this point, it's not really a path that you choose or reject. It's a question of being a human being. And whether you will allow yourself to be one. And, and this may sound like being human is just heartache and pain. But it's not. Oh wait, <laughs> that I found something uplifting to close on. It's not just heartache and pain. There's also love. There's a lot of love in the world. It's the indescribable warmth from your parents and siblings loving you. It's in you loving them back. You'll find it in friends, in inanimate objects like books and stories, in music. You'll feel it when you see a donkey in pain, or a little kitten, or a baby. You'll feel it from the words and actions of comrades in your day and those from the past. You'll feel it transcending time and space and language. And if you're like me, you'll be inordinately lucky to get life-sustaining levels of it from three mostly adorable cats. And all this love will keep you going when it just feels like you can't. I hope to God, if nothing else, you find love all around you and you freely give it. I love you. As always, remember where you are. Love life. Love people. Save one and